Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. So today we're going to talk about the idea that women cannot get along with each other, Mm. whether it's in the workplace or in friendships or in church. Uh, At least I've been told a lot that women are not capable of working well with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say that, in my experience at least, the people who usually talk about this are women. Women say yep. that women can't get along with each other. So yep. what do you make of this? Is this something that you've heard, too? It sounds like, based on your responses, that you've heard it, too. So tell me, <laughs> can women get along with each other? Oh, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> this one is something that I have heard my whole life from all the way back to being a kid when, um, you know, girls would maybe have conflict at a slumber party and the adults would say, well, it's just too many girls. It's all a room full of girls. Of course, there's going to be drama. I heard it then and I hear it now with um, adult women. And where I hear it the most is um, in office situations, whenever there's a conflict. So I've worked in predominantly um, female oriented uh, career fields. And so um, I always work with a lot of women. And um, where I've heard this the most, that women can't get along with each other, has been in some of the more dysfunctional office settings where I've worked. Um, It seems like all the conflict, anytime there's conflict, anytime there's drama, there's always a woman who says, well, you know the reason... It's because we're all women and we can't work together. And um, it's always bothered me. And I think one of the biggest reasons, a couple of reasons, but one of the biggest is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, as a woman, believe that you can't get along with other women, you're not going to try to. And you're going to blame every drama and every conflict you have on the fact that you're women. And I feel like it that kind of idea maybe makes us like subvert or sabotage the female relationships that we have. I don't know. Has has that been your experience? Oh, I love what you said. It's such an avoidance coping mm-hmm. strategy to say, I can just boil this down to the fact that we are the same gender identity and that's why we can't get along. It just really mm-hmm. excuses everyone from doing that hard work of figuring out how you deal with conflict of any kind. So, yeah, and and this stuff starts really, really early. I can think about being in elementary school and hearing that phrase that girls are just mean. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard this, but girls are mean. And people will say, oh, well, boys, you know, they get into fights with each other. They'll beat each other up, but then they get over it. Uh, But girls are vindictive, right? And manipulative. Yeah, they're manipulative. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time in pop culture, Uh, You know, there was a whole movie called Mean Girls that was based on Mm -hmm. a book about mean girls and another movie that I loved growing up, The Craft. So it's like any any movie that features a white girl who rises in popularity, there's always some mean blonde girl who is the antagonist. Every single single plot line. So we're seeing this as young girls and hearing it. Um, and, repeating and it's totally it. normalized. It's totally normalized. Oh, there was this, mm-hmm. that movie Heather's. I never really saw it. It was a little bit before my time, but oh yes, <laughs> same idea. I loved Heather's. That one, <laughs> that one stands out. <laughs> yeah, Mean Girls, especially. Um, 
I feel like there's a couple gems in that movie, like um, when Tina Fey toward the end says, when all the girls are fighting and she says, you know, you have to stop calling each other bitches and sluts because it just gives men permission to call us bitches and sluts. I I always think, yeah, that's a, that's a really important thing. But the whole rest of the movie, um, I feel like just kind of, even though at the end the whole idea is that mean girls um, – that you shouldn't try it. You shouldn't be a mean girl. Um, it still kind of puts the the pressure on like the individual girls to rise above. It still gives us this idea that fundamentally girls are going to act this way, and you have to be better than that and rise above it. And I just think that that message is maybe the part that's harmful because, like you said, when we just say women can't get along because we have these inherent traits that mean we can't get along. It's just a way of scapegoating women for problems that might actually be more about how those situations are organized or um, like in an office situation, how are the staff being treated? Is there burnout? Is there a fair workload? Does everybody have enough resources and training? And so saying, oh, my employees or my colleagues can't get along because we're all women is a way of just avoiding dealing with the actual cause of the conflict. So that's (laughs) something that really... um, yeah, that just bothers me a lot. And I think when it starts so young, it just means we have that much work to do as adults to unravel it. And we haven't talked much about this, but we should now and later in other episodes about what the effects of internalized sexism do to us and to our psyche as women that mm-hmm. we're taught these negative messages about what it means to be a woman. And so we take those on and then play them out in these cycles of being unkind or being um, being dramatic, although I don't love that word, but it it definitely plays out into how we interact with each other. And if we're told that we are supposed to compete for the attention of men and Mm -hmm. boys, that automatically sets us up to be competitors with each other. I mean, think about franchises like The Bachelor and that whole thing Mm -hmm. is the construction of female competition over a man. So all of those things play into it. So um, so what was your high school experience like? Did you, was it like Mean Girls or how were you in high school when it came to female uh, friendships? You know, I look back on high school with a little bit of regret. Um, Don't we all? You know, you went <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> lots of reasons, but you mentioned internalized sexism and that's something that I, um, Really, as an adult, I've had to look back at how some of the the ways that I thought about women and female friendships um, were really harmful as a as a teenager. And um, I was, you know, I was one of those girls that thought it was cool to say I get along better with guys than with girls. I don't know if you ever heard that, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I um, I remember that coming out of my mouth a couple times in high school. And the, the thing that gets me is it was just not true. All of my best friends were girls. But it sounded like a cool thing to say. And um, I did have a, you know, a fun group of guy friends that I really enjoyed. They made me laugh, and it was, it was always really easy to hang out with them. But um, the, the people in my life who were, like, really there for me, who had my back, who knew me, um, they were all girls. And um, I've tried to figure out, like, why I thought that way. And um, I, think what I, I think what I was trying to say when I said I get along better with guys was more like I want to be taken seriously. Mm. Don't 
associate me with femininity, associate me with masculinity, because masculinity is taken more seriously in our culture. And I want I want to be seen. Don't dismiss me. And, you know, I think you I picked up really early that women are often dismissed, especially women that associate with a lot of um, like feminine things, you know, women who enjoy feminine related pursuits. And um, I think that when you see that or when I saw that growing up um, saying I'm not one of those girls, I'm the cool girl that gets along with guys. Um, it was me throwing those girls under the bus. Mm. And um, I really like that's the that's the regret I have about it because now, you know, by the time I got to college, I realized that the one of the ways that our society disrespects women is to disrespect all things related to femininity. So things like wearing makeup or, or being interested in fashion or liking romantic comedies or being interested in dance and cheerleading and things like that. You know, that stuff's just um, really isn't respected in the same way that more masculine-related interests are. And so um, now I can see that and can see that it's okay to celebrate the parts of me that are more girly and that it's okay um, to respect other women for those interests and lift other women up for those interests. Um, So I kind of feel like the impulse to say that women can't get along comes from a really similar place that... Um, it's a, it's a desire to be taken seriously. And so we realize we live in a society that favors masculinity and we're just trying to find our place in that, in that patriarchal structure. Oh, you are on it today. I, (laughs) everything you said really resonated. And I think boiling it down to what was the impulse to say, I get along better with guys. Take me seriously. Mm -hmm. Don't see me as a quote unquote silly girl. Mm-hmm. And I think girls are rewarded for for walking this very fine line of still being feminine and being attractive. You don't you can't let that go because then you get made oh, fun of. Oh yeah, but also being athletic or able to um, kind of roll with the more body humor of guys and not being bothered by it or like those kinds of things. That that yeah. type of girl, at least in my context, was very much rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. If you could hang, but it's an impossible line to walk. It really is. I mean, you can go too far one way or the other and, and kind of lose your, your place. But uh, the take me seriously piece that really resonated with me. Um, so thinking about beyond high school, I was, I was thinking about this issue as we, as we age, as we get out of school into adulthood and into relationships, ro- romantic relationships with one another and I, I think that this mythology around women not getting along with each other really starts to break down there because yeah, most of the women that I know who are adults, well, women are adults, but women in general that I know have a lot more meaningful social relationships and friendships than the men that I know do. Of mm-hmm. course, there are exceptions to that. And I would say I'm talking primarily about heterosexual men who are coupled with women. Um, but Mm -hmm. most of the men that I know just struggle to stay in meaningful friendships with each other. And I think that this is an example of how patriarchy is really harmful to men too, because men are cultured to be independent and competitive and not show vulnerability emotionally. Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. those aren't great qualities for forming strong friendships that last over time if you feel like you can't talk about things that are important to you. If, if the conversation stays at a surface level, it's hard to form meaningful bonds with other people. Yeah, and if you're not taught to value emotional connection with other people, then the the way that I see it is your world gets really small. Mm-hmm. The relationships you have are really shallow and you don't go out of your way to form new ones, you know? And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I find that it's harder to meet people and make new friends the older I get because we're just not... Um, you know, in high school and college, you're forced to spend a lot of time with the same people. Um, and you and friendships come out of that. And it's hard. You have to be very intentional now in making friends. Mm-hmm. And um, doing that requires a level, a level of vulnerability. Um, just asking a person to coffee, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a, a relative stranger, like that takes a level of vulnerability that... Um, it's helpful to have been socialized <laughs> from the beginning to be vulnerable. Um, and I could see that really working against um, guys who weren't socialized that way. I also think it's a matter of time and flexibility. I mean, we're both in, in marriages and committed relationships. And when I think about being in my early 20s when I was single, I had a lot more time that mm-hmm. I felt like I that could too. spend on friendships. And it reminds me, I just read All the Single Ladies. Have you read that book? No, not yet, but it sounds... Yeah, I've heard about it. A lot of it, and I forget the author's name, but we'll add it in the show notes. Um, it's just escaping me right now. But basically saying, as we get older, if we if we decide to become you know, partnered with someone, that it really does limit the time that we're able to spend in outside of those relationships. Because in a good relationship, there's a lot of emotional satisfaction with your partner, but there's not that same flexibility in terms of your time. And so the time that you do have, you want to spend wisely. And so uh, spending it on people you don't know to try to cultivate new friendships can be kind of a risk-taking thing, as you were talking about. And I know that I'm really choosy about how I spend the time that I'm not at home with my family now. So that definitely makes it difficult for people of all genders. But I think in particular, I see men depending on their female partners to be the one to establish their social networks and keep them going, which is why I think a lot of men kind of struggle to maintain their own friend circle because their wives or partners are doing it for them. Yeah. And that, you know, I've actually read there's research about this. Um, and we are going to talk in a couple of episodes about emotional labor. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, gosh. But um, I read a, lo- a few articles last year about how women in heterosexual relationships often take on that emotional labor of being the like cruise director of the family. Mm-hmm. They're the social planners. They keep up uh, the family calendars. They remember people's birthdays. They buy the Christmas gifts. They they seek out new friendships. They encourage their husbands to you know take time with their friends. And um, there's some really interesting research that shows when um, in elderly couples, when wives die, um, it's actually more um, likely that husbands will die sooner than if it's reversed and the husband dies first. Um, that the husband will die sooner after um, a wife is gone. And a lot of that is attributed to the social isolation they have because they just, all all of that infrastructure that um, the wife created uh, around their social lives just kind of falls away. 
And um, that loneliness and isolation can really lead to um, earlier death for the for the surviving spouse. And um, more often, that's mm-hmm. a husband. And um, it really, like, that is a tragedy. <laughs> and what I was, one of the things I was reading is that, um, you know, independence is really, like, the skill we prize or a trait that we prize in our culture. But the older you get, um, the the more your um your life expectancy kind of depends on having a strong social network and independence becomes less and less Mm. valuable as we age and I think that that's really fascinating and I think it's a really like should it you know it could be a wake-up call but it's a strong reminder to to not isolate into our um you know nuclear families and to keep up strong community connections um and that requires making friends and maybe busting down some of these myths about who can get along with Mm -hmm. each other. That's a really good point. And I will say this is why I have returned to a faith community, to a church, because it's built Mm. in regular time with the same group of people that I'm going to see on a weekly basis, sometimes more often, because I knew that I needed to have Mm -hmm. something scheduled into my life that I just, I wake up on Sunday and this is what our family does. And we go and I see people because if it's on me to schedule out all these individual relationships with people that don't have a specific like activity or purpose around them, I know that I can't keep up with that many relationships separately. So having a faith Mm -hmm. community to turn to, to go and be with folks regularly around like shared purpose has been a really important social function for me. And I think the church continues to touch people throughout the lifespan, which is why it's such a cool institution and a challenging one at the same time. I think especially for older folks, that's a way for them to stay connected. So why don't we talk about mm-hmm. the church a little bit um, in this topic of female friendships? So what do you think about that? Did you hear anything growing up about female friendships that are connected to our faith traditions? You know... um, I was thinking about stories of female friendship from the Bible. And what's hard is that there's not very many, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> but um, my favorite example of female friendships in the Bible is the story of Naomi and Ruth. And, um, you know, Naomi was Ruth's daughter-in-law. I mean, uh, Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. And... Um, when her husband died, Naomi gave her the chance to go back to her family of origin, go home, remarry, but she chose to stay with Naomi. And um, the words that she uses uh, are really beautiful. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Even so far as saying, I want to be buried next to you mm. when you die. That is that is a really strong declaration of friendship and love and devotion between two women. And I think that that, um, you know, what's interesting to me is I think we forget sometimes that that exchange took place between two women because we, when we hear that passage most often is usually at heterosexual marriage ceremonies. Um, so it's, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily being co-opted um, as a like declaration of romantic love, but um, I do think that we maybe don't celebrate it as much as a as a um, an example of female friendship. Um, maybe we could drive that point home a little harder when we're discussing our sacred text. Yeah, I love that, and I love this story too. 
the book of Ruth is great. I mean, it's one of the few books we have that are named after women in general. It's a very short book. So if mm-hmm. you haven't read it, it's only four chapters. Uh, and it's one of the stories that I'm lifting up in my book, Women Rise Up, that'll come out next March. But I think another part that's important to remember, and I think it goes to your point about as we age and that need for interdependence uh, rather than independence. I mean, both Naomi and Ruth are rig- really marginalized at this point in their lives. They've both lost their husbands. Mm-hmm. And in that culture, if you don't have a male relative, you as a widow have no rights. You can't own land. I mean, they have nothing. And so they decide to stick it out together as a way to make sure that they both survive, even though really their family mm-hmm. ties were cut off when their when their respective husbands died. I mean, they really don't have family anymore in the in the way that that culture saw family. So their decision to stay together um, and for Ruth to travel back to Naomi's homeland was a pretty pretty huge act of resistance, frankly, and, and really an act of we if we're going to survive, we have to stick this out together. So whatever we have to do, yes. we're gonna we're gonna stick it out and be be as one um, while we figure this out. And and they do. It's really an incredible story of kind of female female friendship, female relationships, female survival. And there, like you said at the beginning, there's so few examples in the Bible of relationships that we would want to emulate. That I think yeah. <laughs> I think folks are eager when they see an example of something that they can use in their own relationship to to turn to this particular passage. And at the same time, as you were saying, we lose that uniqueness that this was an exchange between two women. So thank you for lifting that up. So it's time to uh, talk about what we're reading, which I've heard we have some librarians who are listening who really love this section. So, <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yay. So uh, actually this week we decided to talk about the same book because it's definitely worth double the time, if not more. So, Ashley, what book are we talking about today? So, we have recently both read Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker, who is a friend of yours, a friend of our... Friend of the pod. A, a friend of the <laughs> podcast, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we actually... Um, a few months ago, we did a book club um, around this book, and um, it was a really um, incredible experience. We had some great um, involvement from other folks around the state um, who read the book, and uh, we talked about it and really kind of processed how it, all of the things that it brought up for us and all the main points that he made. So, um, uh, since you actually know Dr. Parker pretty well, how uh, what would you like to offer? Well, I would say Dr. Parker, for those of you who don't know, you should go Google him one. But Dr. Parker is someone who straddles different worlds and identities in a really beautiful way, in unusual ways. He is an OBGYN who decided, had kind of an epiphany in the middle of his career that he needed to become an abortion provider uh, and that that was part of his call as a Christian. He was listening to Martin Luther King talk about the Good Samaritan, and he felt like he had to help women in this way. So he's a pra- he's still a practitioner, and he's one of the few abortion providers in Mississippi uh, and in a number of other southern states. And he has written this best-selling book about his life's journey growing up as a poor black boy in Alabama and kind of how he got to medical school and um, he lays out sort of his own theology around abortion. It's a really fascinating 
book that's part autobiography, part kind of moral argument for why um, access to abortion is important for people of faith specifically. But what I love about him so much is that he is an ad- an advocate and an activist. He's out speaking, but he's still a practitioner. He's still very much involved with mm-hmm. women's care today. Um, you know, a lot of folks, when they get some notoriety, they stop doing the thing that got them notoriety to begin with. And yeah. what I love about him is that he continues, at, at least for now, to straddle both of those things. And so his book is very current in terms of the work that he's doing. He's he's still working with women. It's very much rooted in that experience, that day-to-day experience of being um, in the abortion room. And also what his experience is like dealing with protesters every day who claim the same faith that he has, but who call him a murderer and how he's learned to to deal with that and take that in and how it doesn't stop him from doing the work. So um, it's a great, great book. You should pick up a copy, uh, go look up Dr. Parker, mm-hmm. follow his work. He, I think, is a very prophetic voice of our time. I think so, too. And I think his book is a really important contribution to this conversation about reproductive health and rights because I, what I've seen um, – and in my experience, the the struggle a lot of people have is we've sort of positioned the the conversation around women's health and reproductive health and rights as you either support reproductive rights or you're a person of mm-hmm. faith, that there's no overlap. And um, I know that that is not how I feel and that's not how a lot of Christians and other and people of faith That's not how a lot of people feel, Um, but they don't have a way to articulate it or a language for it. And one of the things that I think is so important about this book is that Dr. Parker gives us some language around this and opportunities to really explore all the facets of of the issues. And the, the line that always comes back to me is that he says he performs abortions because of his faith, not in Mm -hmm. spite of it. And um, there's something about that framing of it that gives people permission to at least have the conversation, you know, instead of feeling so afraid of just the concepts and the words and the shame and stigma around it um, that they can't even talk about it or hear about it. Um, so it's it's been a really important um, touchstone for us here um, to really engage with these really critical um, issues that are that are truly impacting women in Mississippi and um, and think about what it means to be a Christian who supports reproductive health and rights. So, um, yeah, read it. It's amazing. Read it. Pick <laughs> it up. We'll we, include this in the show notes. Uh-huh. Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. We love you, Dr. Parker. You're amazing. We <laughs> love you. So, Katie, you're up for this episode's Kindreds of the Moment. Yay! Kindreds of the Moment. Actually, the one that I have is is quite serious, uh, so I'll try to tone my tone it down. But it, you'll you'll understand why toward the end. So, I just finished watching The Keepers on Netflix, and if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it for you. But it's this docu series about the unsolved murder of a Catholic nun in Baltimore. Her name was Sister Kathy Sesnick, and she was murdered in 1969. So we're talking about almost 50 years ago. 
And it's connected to this horrible cover-up of widespread sexual abuse of Catholic schoolgirls by priests uh, in in a Baltimore school. Um, But there's this group of former high school students who were students of Sister Kathy Sesnick, who have been at this case for decades at this point. And they are doing this sort of um, sleuth work on their own because they love and care so much for her and they they want to make sure that justice is served uh, for her family. So there are these fierce, steady, dedicated uh, women who are bringing this this whole murder and, and the abuse connected to it to light. Um, and fighting the Catholic Church all of the way and fighting the bureaucracy of Baltimore County. Um, so I don't know. They're just very inspiring to me. So it's a, definitely a tough series to watch. And if you feel like you're going to get triggered by that, you know, I totally respect that. But if nothing else, you can go check out what they're doing on her case. They have a Facebook page called Justice for Catherine Sesnick, and you can kind of see um, what these women have been doing to keep this story at the forefront of people's minds and that this still has not been solved and and they're not going to rest. So I want to lift up the women who are fighting for justice for sister Kathy Sesnick in Baltimore. Wow. You know, I've seen that on Netflix, but I didn't know what it was about. So um, this is really interesting and I'm going to check it out. So that's it for this episode. Join us next time when we'll talk about Dating while Christian. Oh, at least something from our past and not our present. Yet still so traumatizing. (laughs) Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you.